to Tell Me Your Story with Paradigms for a New World, giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and I thank you so much for joining us here on the program as uh, we uh, are fast approaching, I believe it would be our 13th um, anniversary of this program, September uh, 7th of uh, 2007 is when we started. So we're fast approaching that date. So we're very excited about that anniversary. You know that we, uh, speaking of sevens, we come your way on Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. and Monday mornings at 1 a.m. We do stream live at those times at richarddugan.com. And we also podcast these programs on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM. And I would mention all of them, but I can't remember them all. I throw them out there uh, when I can to get you folks to tune in and listen in and find out what's uh, what's going on. We encourage you also, while you're listening to the interview, to go to our guest website. Uh, all you have to do if you're listening to the podcast is click on their name, or if you're using the SoundCloud player, click on the grocery cart as well. It takes you to our guest website where you can find out more about what they are doing. Continue your transformational evolutionary process. We certainly hope that you will avail yourselves of that. And if you like the work that we are uh, doing, the things that we are bringing your way as far as guests and subjects and so forth, and you'd like to be a part of uh, that, we would love to have you a part of it. Uh, we have PayPal and Patreon accounts so that uh, you can support us financially. And that is for your security as well as ours. So uh, do what you can if you can. And we thank you, thank you, thank you if you have helped. And we thank you, thank you, thank you if you will help, if you're going to help. But you know what? We'll take energetic support, too. We're not... Uh, overly picky i don't want to put it that way we, we certainly need money to, to keep things going but uh, hey energy is a good thing too if i had an ex long extension cord uh to keep me going uh, after having getting having having to get up at four o'clock in the morning to come down to the radio station and turn it back on because there was a power outage um hey you know it uh, I w that would have been helpful <laughs> that would have been helpful Today, we're going to school. Well, sort of, sort of going to school. We're going to go to a school that's uh, kind of going to be in reverse. Uh, we're going to talk with our very special guest here on the program who has written a book called Unlearning Anxiety and Depression, the four-step self-coaching program to reclaim your life. He is also the author of the internationally best-selling self-coaching series, Joseph J. Uh, uh, Luciani is my guest, and I want to thank you so much for joining us here on Tell Me Your Story. It's great to have you with us. Well, it's fantastic to be with you. Thanks, Richard. I know that uh, the two things that were mentioned in the title of your book, Anxiety and Depression, oh, I don't know that they're necessarily in the forefront of the minds of the people listening to the program due to this whole deal with the, the coronavirus, but I have to say that I've been trying to uh, get people to help me out here. Uh, to understand what the physiological and or biological detriments are to anxiety uh, when one has anxiety, when one has depression, or uh, what one of my friends who sent me an email uh, enlisting a greater virus than the corona or COVID uh, were ignorance, fear, and a lack of faith. Uh, and I'm often wondering... Uh, I don't know if, if, if you've done study in this area or not, but I'm off, I've often wondered what 
are the downsides? What, what are the negatives, if you will, the detrimental effects of anxiety, depression, fear uh, that are basically fed by a certain level of ignorance? And sometimes that ignorance is supported by the information that we're given from a multitude of different places and it's almost contradictory information. Can we talk a little bit about that uh, that aspect of it in terms of, uh, you know, this is what ails us right now? Mm-hmm. You're certainly, uh, certainly correct. I mean, there, there's very, very little wiggle room to escape some anxiety, some depression, you know, in this climate. Um, in fact, I would go as far as to say that uh, it, we might even consider the circumstantial aspects of this virus uh, unavoidable in terms of some anxiety, some depression, which uh, which brings me to another conclusion, and that's that uh, there is a difference between normal, if you will, healthy anxiety, depression, and that which is neurotically driven. Very big, big difference. But you were asking about the physiology. <clears throat> From a psychological standpoint, anxiety, depression, they create stress. And stress, whether it be adrenaline, cortisol, various bodily functions. But essentially, if you think of a bucket with holes poked in the bottom, that's what stress and insecurity-driven thinking does. It depletes the natural chemicals in our brain. That bucket is filled with balancing chemicals, norepinephrine, serotonin, dopamine. So when we're stressed, when we're anxious, when we're depressed, the holes in the bottom of that bucket are slowly leaking out those chemicals, those vital balancing chemicals. And our normal homeostatic processes can't bring us back to balance. So we start to function in a chronically imbalanced place, which is descriptive of anxiety and depression, the neurotic kind. But even with circumstantial anxiety and depression, that which most people are going through, there still is a depletion. People today might find themselves more moody, more upset, more lower tolerance, things like that. So we're, we're really in a soup with this psychologically as well as with the COVID itself. I also know, too, that uh, one of the other factors uh, outside of but related to or connected to uh, the coronavirus or COVID-19, uh, depending upon <laughs> how you want to refer to it, um, is, of course, the, the, uh, the aspect of, uh, as I like to say, being sequestered at home. It's kind of like you're on jury duty for months. And... Uh, <laughs> I I know that for me, I, I've been one of the lucky ones. I've been able to continue working. My wife was furloughed for three months, and she's just gone back to work, and the first day was horrendous uh, because it was her having to try to figure out how the new computer system was working uh, as well as dealing with her supervisor uh, who was sort of being a little bit more of a taskmaster uh, at that time on that day when she she comes back. And so uh, when I saw her uh, that evening when I picked her up from work and even the m- next morning, I said, OK, you have to remember you have to talk to her and you have to tell her, number one, I've been off for three months and the computer system has changed. So give me a break. Cut me some slack. I'll get it. But it's going to take a, a, a couple of days and so forth and so on. Well, believe it or not. When I picked her up on Tuesday, she said, oh, much better day. My brain kicked in and I figured it all out. (laughs) And it's like when you're told stay home, 
she again, she had that adjustment period of not going to work and trying to figure out what to do and so forth. Well, now when people are going back to work, it's the same kind of adjustment and allowances need to be made. Are you seeing in your experience um, uh, as people start to return to uh, their their workaday world, even if it might be part time that could lead back to full time, they're having uh, challenges and struggles with that as, as much as they've wanted to get back into the workplace and doing the things that they've been doing before this all started. There's still a challenge of uh, sort of, again, reacclimated to what is ostensibly a new environment at work. Well, we're here in New Jersey, so we haven't started our going back to work yet. Ah. And my mullet is still growing. So, <laughs> <laughs> But I'm, I, have, I have my first haircut appointment June 28th, and I'm hoping we get there. Um, one of the things that I'd like to just piggyback onto what you're saying in, in terms of returning to work uh-huh. is, is something that I feel I feel that is, is very confident in saying that we're going to face something very unique, and I kind of call it a, a Corona PTSD. There are going to be lingering psychological effects long after this virus is in the rearview mirror, and I, I don't think we've really thought about that or prepared for it or even care about it right now, to be honest with you. But ask yourself this question: a month from now, <clears throat> two months from now. What happens if you're standing in line and somebody sneezes on you? What happens if someone bumps you as you're in the grocery store? Well, with typical post-traumatic stress, what happens is that it evokes all that flood of emotions that were experienced during those heightened anxiety states while we struggled with our stay at home, while we struggled with whether or not we were going to get the virus. So I I think that uh, there's going to be this kind of long-term readjustment which is going to be a psychological readjustment. Will we, will we readjust completely? In all probability, yes. But there will be some who are, have maybe have a lower threshold to this kind of anxiety. Uh, it may linger for years where just the right kind of stimulus might evoke that emotional reaction. Mm. And there are those of us, I, I would consider myself in that category, who aren't necessarily going to experience that because... We haven't experienced the first thing. Uh, Certainly, I'm aware when January rolled around and we started hearing the news coming out of Italy, for example, and then other parts of the world. uh, Oh, my gosh, this is pretty horrific. And then, boom, we get our first case. I guess it was late January here in the United States. And and I thought, you know, we need to shut down the airlines now in January. We need to shut them down for two weeks. I've been advocating this for 40 plus years, Joseph. When the influenza starts, it's spread across the United States, shut down the airlines. And you know what they were, they know what someone told me? Can't do it. It'll be, it'll be devastating to our economy as compared to what we're doing now. (laughs) If we had done that in January, I, I would venture, we wouldn't be where we are today. I really do. But my problem is, has been, and and I'd like for you to address this, as I mentioned, we get information from so many different sources. We don't know who who to believe uh, and who who to trust. Uh, You know, we just, we don't know. And I have to say that uh, our president has not helped matters any over the last six years through the campaigns as well as into his presidency. Because 
He will say one thing. I mean, even at these news conferences like Fauci, he will come up after the president said whatever he says. And basically, if you want to put it in this context, he contradicts the man. All right. Then you have your different news sources. Uh, and depending upon their we'll just call it their bias depends upon the kind of information. Oh, it's not that big of a deal. It's just like the flu and so forth. Oh, no, this is terrible. We have got to go home and stay home and so forth and so on. That's got to drive the mind of the viewer, the listener, absolutely. You think anxiety and depression are bad? How about that confusion, that unknowing, that inability to process that information in a coherent way to say, Okay, I can make sense of this because it's almost impossible. I'm not an epidemiologist. Are you? <laughs> I'm not. I am not. But let me tell you one thing. Uh, my my whole contention with anxiety, depression is that we're we're either feeding it or we're starving it. I, I do have a kind of heretical notion that anxiety and depression are more habits than they are illnesses. And their habits of insecurity and then the need to control. And this becomes a whole scenario of trying to over control life, which stresses us, which changes our chemistry. But it's all a matter of discerning facts from emotional fictions. Mm -hmm. So when you say we're getting all this contradictory information, well, in a normal world, without all these contradictory points of information, we can pretty much ferret out what is factual, objective truth and what is emotional fiction, which is the, the hypersensitive, uh, disproportionate reaction to certain things. But we are now in a climate where exactly as you say, where the information is so garbled that even those that are relatively anxious or, or not anxious or not depressed, uh, we have trouble ferreting out and therefore creating more and more anxiety because we can't distinguish between fact versus fiction. So we'll, it leaves us in a chronic state of not knowing, which is certainly uh, fodder for anxiety and depression to just go on and on uh, until there is clarity, until each of us is able to discern an ongoing clarity. Can we really grope and, and really handle this? in a psychologically sophisticated way. Yeah, and, and of course, this has been the problem probably for the last 10 or 20 years, period. I mean, just because the polarization here in the United States is such politically that you, you just have all of this stuff. And then, of course, the Internet doesn't help and social media doesn't help. I have to, I have to throw this out to you and have you respond to this. We have been promoting... Since September of 2019, 2020, the year of perfect vision. And we encourage people to stop, to spend some time, five minutes, if, if you can spare five minutes a day, especially if you're at home, go within, whether it be meditating, praying, whatever you feel comfortable doing, not only to find that still, quiet, calm place, that peaceful place, uh, uh, but also where you can get the accurate information for you. I'm not saying accurate information from the standpoint of what should I do about coronavirus? What should I do about masks? What should I do about toilet paper? No, no, no. We're talking about what should I, how should I take care of me so I can make it through this, not just not catching it. Even if you don't catch it, there's still stuff you have to go through. So we've been promoting that. Talk to us about that aspect from your perspective 
in or out of your PhD uh, 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 um, uh, shingle on the on the wall on the on the ceiling there or whatever. Um, about that aspect of that that actually could help us uh, even right now before we get into these four steps that you talk about in your book unlearning. Yeah, I, there's a, a Zen adage that's just so powerful. Uh, chop wood, carry water. Uh, in, in the environment where we are right now, a lot of us still sequestered. Um, it's really important to focus on the present, on the now, uh, to simplify our lives, to not complicate them. One way to simplify our lives is to have less of that in, influx of media. Turn off the TV, the radio, just, just relax a little bit and focus on what's right in front of you. Uh, the more we try to simplify our lives right now, the more we try to be present. Uh, you know, the, the anxiety doesn't exist in the present. That's the future. That's the what ifs tomorrow. What if this happens? Mm. What if I? So in the present, if you look around you, if you chop wood, if you carry water, if you wash the dishes, whatever you're doing, do it with your whole heart and soul. Stay in the present. Leave anxiety and time traveling over there and your life will start to simplify even amidst the storm that rages outside the door. I like that. Leave time travel. <laughs> Leave time travel behind. Uh, some people would like to travel back in time to a simpler time, as, as they say. Um, and, and you said something interesting, too, also, because one of the things that I've, I've heard this more times than I'd like to uh, acknowledge, uh, but it's usually, and this is pre-COVID uh, uh, virus, the economists, uh, every day, they will they'll look at the numbers, maybe from yesterday or from this morning or what have you. And even if the numbers are good, they're still not happy. So I often say, well, what numbers would make you happy? But they invariably end the report with a phrase, in these uncertain times. To which I, I ask, when have we ever been in certain times? Never. Change is the only constant in the universe. And so that's why I am perplexed in one sense by this uh, this aspect of the anxiety about the future and, and talking about, quote unquote, uncertain times. You hear now you're hearing the phrase the new normal. You know, when has it ever been really normal? And I I I can see where people would see the new normal or the old normal, I guess you might say pre pre covid. Um, but it's like life has always changed. I mean, life changed for the horse and buggy industry at the turn of the last century when automobiles came in. And uh, the phone industry changed when uh, cell phones, uh, especially the ones in those giant suitcases that you had to carry around, came into vogue. And now we've got the smartphones, which now can, I mean, some people probably don't even have computers anymore because, again, you can do everything you want pretty much on your tablet or iPad or maybe your phone as well. Um, what about starting to look at the reality that... Even the, the universe around us is constantly changing. Why would we expect it to be different down here? Is it because the human mind wants to have that stability, that continuity, even though it re, in reality it doesn't exist? Do our minds process, uh, let's say pre again, pre-COVID, do, do, do our minds process and say, 
yeah, this is tolerable. This 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 can this can be the new normal, or you know, or this I'll call this normal. Is that kind of what we're doing? Uh, I I guess I want to get clarity on that. Yeah, I uh, th- th- there's a Chinese curse. Uh, may you live, <laughs> may you live in interesting times. Uh, and uh, well, let's put it this way: these are interesting times. Um, I, I, I do agree with you. I think that we, maybe it's the second law of thermodynamics, everything atrophies over time and, and just decompensates. Everything changes. We as human beings, especially with insecurity, and this is so important psychologically, the more insecure you are, the more you cling to status quo, the more you cannot tolerate things changing and the more neurotic you get, the more things change. So it is very it is very true that world around us changes. And I think back, I, I was a child of the 50s, and, and I look back idyllically and say, wow, that was a great time. I remember parades down the street and just everything calm and neighbors sitting on the street in lawn chairs. But I don't know that. I just, re, I just reminisced to be that way. And, and all through the years, the Vietnam War, the protest, you're right, there's always that upheaval. But I do, I do agree with you, Richard, that that we have our minds are seeking and thereby almost coloring things in such a way that we want stability so badly that we're even willing to maybe fabricate it or kind of plug a few holes to just try to sidestep the reality that tomorrow will be another challenge. If we really felt that this pandemic was just the beginning of other challenges, uh, I think we'd be so destabilized, we'd have a hard time getting out of bed in the morning. So we handle our challenges one by one. And I think that's the way to live our lives in the present, whatever on deck, deal with it, handle it, get through it. Tomorrow will take care of itself. We don't have to think about tomorrow's challenges. I even think of people of faith who are freaked out by a lot of this stuff. And and I I have quoted this passage or paraphrased <laughs> this passage and not necessarily quote it, uh, where um, Jesus is talking to the crowd uh, even his disciples and everybody's worried about uh, what they're going to wear, what they're going to eat, you know, all this kind of, where am I going to lay my head to rest tonight? And basically uh, he tells them, look, you see the bird up there, you know, the little blue jay maybe? I don't know if they had blue jays in Israel or not, but uh, you know, that bird doesn't toil. He didn't, he doesn't work. Okay. And yet look, he's taken care of, look, he's got a family or she, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. Uh, and, he, you know, and, and God created the bird. How much more do you think the creator is going to take care of you and you were created in his image? You're his children. And I, 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 you know, I think about that and I think, yeah. And I have to remind myself of that from time to time, especially I know you've probably been through this in your lifetime where you've gone through once the same cycle over and over again, thinking, my God, I'm not going to make it. I, I, I used to do that from a financial standpoint. I'd, I'd look at my finances and how am I going to pay the bills this month and da 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 Oh, it's over. It's, it's, I'm, I don't know. And then it'll happen again. And finally, I got to a point where I said, I need to stop doing this because what is happening is I get myself all worked up about the same thing that happened last month and I'm still here. I'm still alive, which means it didn't kill me which means it's not going to kill me this month. And if it happens again next, next month, it isn't going to kill me. And I finally was able to calm down. I was able to look at it rationally and say, okay, 
this is what we're going to do and blah, blah, blah. And uh, so we've been through so many things here in California, for example. I don't know about in New Jersey, but here in California, the number of wildfires that I have lived through in the 14 years I've lived here in Santa Barbara, uh, I think it's 12 or 13, especially the most horrific one, which was called the Thomas Fire. And following that fire, we had horrendous rain in January, on January 9th, and a massive mudslide came down and almost virtually wiped out the town of Montecito, all the way to the ocean. And I don't know how many people... They, they, I think it was 20 or 25 people were killed. That was the number they tallied. But it didn't make a lot of sense considering there were a lot of other people who were living in shacks, in backyards, and so on and so forth. But anyway, we lived, we made it. We survived. We've had wildfires go across the, the front country and the back country and so forth. We're still here. What's the, what's the, what's that? I, 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 when, when you're done, finish it. Well, I was just going to say, uh, do we have a hard time as human beings uh, understanding our past as far as the fact that in the present moment we're still alive, we made it, we're okay, and sort of maybe trying to project that into the future without anxiety, saying it's going to be okay. However, it turns out, it's going to be okay. That That is so pivotal to finding your center, your mental health. A, a story that, that always fascinated me was St. Francis of Assisi was hoeing his garden and someone came up and said, what would you do if the world's going to end tonight? And St. Francis said, I would continue hoeing my garden. Uh, the thing is, tomorrow, we talked talk before about time traveling. Mm. Uh, the what ifs, this is so classic with, with worrying and insecurity. What if I lose my job? What if I get the virus? What if, what if, what if? And you're absolutely correct, Richard, that we, we have a distrust. And the more insecure, the more distrust. So the person, what I say to my patients all the time is very similar to what you just said. How many problems have you solved in your life? How many problems have you gotten through one way or another? A hundred, a thousand, ten thousand. What makes you think you will not handle the next confrontation? What makes you, and this is where self-distrust comes in. So self-trust is such a pivotal, necessary core component for handling life in an ongoing manner. With self-trust, you don't have to anticipate. You come to realize that when something confronts me, I'll handle it in that moment. You know, we are survival machines. This is in our DNA. If it weren't so, our species wouldn't be here. We don't have to cognitively think about survival. Our limbic system, our deeper brain system is right there without any cognition to serve us in the given moment. We need to let go, we need to trust, and we need to really trust the fact that we are in fact both psychological and physiological survival machines. Isn't that what we go into too, that the survival mode in those times, uh, you know, uh, when that kicks in? Uh, unfortunately, a lot of us tend to do, we do get stuck in our emotions. And uh, I remember, a matter of fact, I was sharing this story with somebody the other day about my first, first, and I say it this way, my first and only divorce. Okay. I'm in my second marriage and it will be my last um, because I'm going to do everything I can to make it work. I'm telling you that right now. But my first divorce, um, I was served on May 1st of 1998. And at that time I was even able to make the joke, ah, gives a whole new meaning to the phrase Mayday. Um, 
But I was an emotional basket case for the entire month of May. I couldn't think straight. I thought, oh, my God, I'm being attacked. And I mean, this was the but when June hit, I don't know if it was because it went into June or not or what transition happened. I went into my intellectual brain for the first time. And I finally realized, wait a minute. Yeah, I'm not the only person in this relationship. She is, too. So, you know, there's a 50-50 split here, kids. And it was then that I was able to finally work through that emotion. I wasn't emotionally, uh, 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 I, I wasn't an emotional basket case. And I was able to start thinking and processing and, and, and doing the things that were necessary for me. Um, are there techniques and are these four steps that you write about in your book, Unlearning Anxiety and Depression, that can help us, can teach us how to shift maybe a little bit quicker? We don't, we don't want to ignore the emotions. I'm sure you as a, as a practicing a psychologist would ad- agree. You do not want to stuff your emotions. You do not want to ignore them. You want to go through them so you're not carrying them with you the rest of your life. It's one of the reasons why we have people like you in business, because we had crap going on in, in our childhood and teenage years, and now we have to get therapy. Um, so let's avoid the therapy. And is that part of what you talk about in, uh, in unlearning? Yeah, I, I, the four steps I call mind talk. We need to, we need to realize that uh, our mind can easily be hijacked by insecurity. And and let me just lay this out. As we grow up in our developmental years, we are conditioned by many variables, most which tend to make us feel somewhat vulnerable. A child is so dependent on parents. Everyone, no one has perfect parents. There is illness, separation, loss. So we develop insecurities, a feeling of vulnerability. We start to compensate by worrying more, overthinking, avoiding. And it's the compensatory aspect of our nature that gets us into trouble over time. You think of a juggler, we're trying to juggle all these controlling aspects. Well, lactic acid sets in and psychological lactic acid will eventually start bringing on symptoms of anxiety and depression. But all that past is just encapsulated in the moment in the present. That's why I don't feel we need to dissect that past. I think it's all in front of us right now. All those habits, all those distrusting feelings that we have all those everything is right there we need to solve the problems of the moment not find yeah it's a cigarette smoker we don't need to know why you took that first cigarette we've got to break the habit that's what i feel let's look at the habit of anxiety and depression how are you feeding it how are you starving it and i think it's very important to recognize that in the moment uh, if we look at the habits that persist the things that cause emotion the things that really bring us to our knees we'll find germs and pieces of information that really need to be challenged. And this is what Mind Talk is all about, to be able to override the passivity of insecurity-driven thinking and actively take a role in our own healing. Have you found uh, some people, uh, they, they almost have, <laughs> as one guy used the phrase, they have bulletproof heads, they just... They, it's not that they don't get it, they don't get what you're talking about, say, in a, in a session, a particular session, but that they, they don't want to get it because, and I heard this phrase not long ago, they want to stay in the state of confusion because it's a comfortable, comfortable place to be. You don't have to take responsibility. Yeah. 
I, uh, one of my favorite lines is, that, and it's true, uh, there are people that come into my practice uh, and they, and they really, they don't, they want to become better neurotics. <laughs> you know, quite seriously. The, the, the worry what doesn't want to stop worrying. They just want you to give them a guarantee, which I always say they buy a toaster. <laughs> That's good. Now you've been practicing for, for 40 years. That's what have you seen, if anything, change in the makeup of the psychology of the human being uh, through the people that you have, have, have been with? Or, or maybe there hasn't been a change. Maybe it's still all the same old stuff. Yeah. I, I, I do believe that uh, we are the same uh, in terms of susceptibility, in terms of the way we react to, to the stressors of our life and the way we heal. So in over those 40 years, the only thing I could say is that 40 years ago, I didn't have the same antenna that I have now. So I, I wasn't able to ferret out what was going on. So it seemed more confusing as I started to see more clearly. And this is what happens to anyone in this profession. You develop antenna, instincts, intuition. You start to see things. And you know what? I can say to you in all confidence, when you have a format that is relatively straightforward, it's really not rocket science. You know, the old Freudian, the Jungian, the traditional analysis, uh, it, it, the collective unconscious, the id, the ego, it was very confusing. The lay person had to go to a shrink in order to understand the, the psychobabble. But psychology, healing, habits, feeding, starving, it's not rocket science once you understand the underlying dynamic. Well, I will tell you, I need to ask you about your mother and your father. What kind of a relationship did you have with them? Which is pretty much, uh, <laughs> I don't want to say it's totally, but... Let me, interrupt, let me interrupt one second. When I was in my first analysis, and I've had many, <laughs> when I was in my first analysis, I had a Freudian analyst, and, and I was a little suspect, and he would never say anything. He would just nod, and what do you feel, what, speaking to me? One day, I had a dream, and the dream was that there was a bug on the back of my leg, just behind the knee, and he said, oh... You want to have sex with your mother? And I said, really? Finally, an opinion. <laughs> that was my last session. <laughs> well, I had uh, uh, my ex-wife and her best friend, and this was before the divorce, they felt that I needed to go to therapy because they said I was depressed and it was coming out in uh, anger. Well, the anger was coming out because <laughs> the marriage was falling apart. Needless to say, I went to four sessions. And in the fourth session, the therapist, female, interestingly enough, who, by the way, asked me to name all of my friends. And with the exception of one, all of them were female at that particular time, which, of course, she expressed concern over. But as we went through the sessions and the fourth one, she came to uh, make this statement. She says, well, we need to deal with your, this was her word, character flaws. <laughs> not only was that my last session, I never paid her. So I'm not going to be paying you for that. Uh, now, I know, too, that as a psychologist or psychiatrist, any kind of a counselor, you're not a yes person. You're not there to support their their uh, issues and so forth, where, they're, where they are. You're there to help them work through them, to try to let them 
almost diagnose themselves. So, like you, like you said with your therapist. So Joseph, how do you feel about blah, 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 blah. Um, sometimes we can surround ourselves with friends who, who can actually help us. They're not yes people. They'll call us on our stuff. And quite honestly, those are good friends to have. Uh, and you do not want to push them aside when they do call you on your stuff. Uh, because, you know, they may not be therapists, but that's part of the interaction with human beings is, you know, you don't want to hurt one another. But what you do want to do is help one another through these challenges so that, uh, you know, we come out as stronger society, a stronger civilization uh, or community, whatever, or family. I mean, I've. You know, we're talking about uh, the relationship between uh, this, your work about unlearning anxiety and depression as and the COVID-19. And I just found out I now have four relatives who have the virus in Phoenix. The husband who works in law enforcement probably got it from the jail, brought it home, gave it to his wife, my sister. And subsequently, on Mother's Day, the sisters, uh, the daughters came over uh, to to do a Zoom meeting with my parents who were at their own home. Uh, and now the four of them, the, the two young, uh, my two nieces, my sister and her husband, they have COVID. So now I can. And of course, here I am. I got a little sniffle and that has nothing to do with anything. It could be allergies. I mean, that's something else that we have talked about with, uh, you know, uh, we had an intuitive medical uh, intuitive healer who has talked about this. And even has a book out about 21 tips. And one of them is don't mistake certain symptoms for you having the COVID virus. By the same token, don't ignore them either. It might be allergies. You may have just gotten a a bunch of dust blown in your face by the wind or something. But by the same token, if that's not the case, like in my case, I would venture that um, I haven't had. uh, This is what happens to my system. If I don't get something to eat. I, for some reason, uh, get sort of an, it's like I have an allergic reaction to being hungry, I guess. (laughs) But let's talk about the four steps. Now, you said uh, that they are along the lines of mind talk. And one of them, and this is, this has got to be a tough one because you do have to work through those emotions. But the first one is becoming a a critical observer separating facts from fiction. And of course we talked about it, that at the front end of the program. Um, so we've got to get through the emotions, right. In order to get to that place where we can critically think, right. Yes. The, the first step is, is really uh, discerning reality facts from emotional, as you say, fictions. Uh, the best way to do that is to realize we're not judging. In the first step, you're not judging what you feel or how you feel. We're just like a court stenographer. We're just recording. We're just making a distinction between what are the facts that I'm feeling and what are the emotional fictions. Without any uh, kind of prejudice, we're saying, well, that's that's got to be an emotional fiction because I'm talking about something that may happen tomorrow. Um, so what we're doing in step one, in a dispassionate court stenographer kind of way, we're just realizing that there's, there is a choice. You have a choice to listen to healthy, mature reasoning, rational reasoning, or you can be sequestered by the uh, emotional barrage that you're feeling. So in step one, it is important 
to not get entangled in the emotion, but to observe dispassionately and to make a distinction. Once you realize you have a choice, this is so empowering. You know, we don't realize how quickly we become passively just hijacked, cannibalized by our emotions, because basically our cognition, our healthy mind takes a back seat and insecurity driven thinking is in charge. So by realizing the difference between insecurity driven thinking, healthy thinking puts us in a position of choice. And once you're in a position of choice, now you're really ready to grab the wheel and steer this vehicle. Part of what this program is all about is choice, giving people choices and knowledge of those choices to help make their dreams come true or <laughs> or to work through a pandemic. Yeah, take your pick. Uh, I choose the former myself. But, uh, folks, if you want to find out more about our special guest here on the program, Joseph Luciani, he is a Ph.D. He's the author of Unlearning Anxiety and Depression, the four steps, the four step self coaching program to reclaim your life. He's also the author of the international best selling uh, self coaching series. And you can find out more about him at self coaching.net. Self coaching.net. And we are going to continue our conversation with uh, Joseph Luciani as we continue here on Tell Me Your Story New Paradigms for a New World. Stay tuned. Tell me your stories. You know, I'm already feeling better about myself uh, because I have a feeling that I have been doing some of this work, but I've had an advantage. I've been able to continue my quote unquote normal process of doing these programs. It's called Tell Me Your Story with new paradigms for a new world. We are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. We are trying to provide you with those new ways of living. They may seem like old ways, but uh, hey, if you haven't heard them before, it's new to you, huh? So uh, please uh, stay tuned as we continue talking with our guest. Uh, his name is uh, Dr. Joseph J. Luciani. He is a Ph.D. He is the author of the international best-selling series Self Coaching, as well as the book Unleash Unleashing, Unlearning Anxiety and Depression: The Four-Step Coaching Self Coaching Program uh, to Reclaim Your Life. Now, we started with number one of the four steps. Number two of it's regarding, again, as you say, mind talk has to do with stopping insecurity driven thinking. I would venture the best way to do that is turn. And I, I shouldn't say this because I'm on radio as well. Turn off the radio, turn off the TV, turn off the news, stop reading the newspapers uh, get away from that stuff. Maybe, maybe once a week, turn on the news for 30 minutes and then turn it off. I, I don't know. I had four or five different news apps on my phone at one time, uh, Joseph, and I have since deleted them all. I don't need them. Uh, and, and I've said this on the program many times. I already know about man's inhumanity to man. I do not need to be reminded. I know that it's going on and the names will be changed and the dates and the circumstances, but the inhumanity is still there. Is that maybe one of the first steps is, as I like to say in my book, Choices, watch your personal input. Watch what you take in. And that might have a big impact on your uh, thinking. 
Well, there's, there's absolutely no question that if we flood ourselves with uh, hyperbolic stimuli, uh, catastrophic kind of stuff, there's no question we're going to be feeding our, our neurotic emotions. However, there is a however that I need to throw into this, and that is that even, even without the stimuli, there are those with a core of insecurity, uh, and even that predate COVID, who come into my practice uh, on an ongoing basis with neurotic issues that come not so much from the outside, but from the inner core of insecurity. These are the people that have a generalized fear of life itself, the inability to trust and feel that they can handle what's coming their way. So for the people that are just hammered by the stimuli, of course, to tone it, tone it down, turn it down, no question about it. But even for those that do turn it down and turn off the TV, they may still ponder and ruminate and agonize and catastrophize. That's part of the neurotic process of insecurity. Uh, one, one technique in, in step two of mind talk that I use is called the ABC technique. We can't stop an insecurity driven thought from percolating up into our mind. That's part of the reflexive nature of insecurity. Once that thought pops into my mind, I'm gonna catch the virus, that might be the thought. Well, we couldn't control that thought, but then we say to ourselves, well, what will I do if I catch that virus? That's the, the B thought. The A thought was the initial thought, now the B thought. Then I add a C thought. And if I catch the virus, what's gonna to happen to my job? And then a D. And it, so we start going through the alphabet. We can't control the A thought, but we darn well can stop we can start to control the B, C, D, all the way to Z thoughts. So active control is possible, but you need to realize you cannot be passive with these thoughts. You can't just sit back and do nothing. You must take charge. And the ABC technique is just one of the steps in step two for how to just take uh, more active control over your destiny. Yeah, it's, um, I used to say, I still kind of believe this. That the one time of the day, the 24-hour cycle, that you do not want to try to solve problems in is at night, in the dark. Because in, at night and in the dark, there are no boundaries. And so these problems that you're trying to deal with, whether, whether it be COVID, whether it be whatever it is, um, they are... They, they're huge. They get huge. They're like a giant monster, but again, has no boundaries. It's, it's in, it, it gets as big as you can think it can get. So don't find a way to, if you've got to take a sleeping pill, if you maybe get some warm milk, heat it up and, and get that L-tryptophan in there, something, eat a big turkey. I don't care. Whatever you need to do to put yourself to sleep so that you can wait until morning. Wait until the sun comes up. Now, your problems, the monster has boundaries. Okay? Because you can see by the daylight, it's not that big. Um, that's, that's, that's something that I used. Uh, you ever heard of that? Absolutely. I think, I think what happens is that, you know, we have so many bits of stimulation during the day that uh, our minds are distracted away from that which... At nighttime, where there's less distraction, we are free to roil about and, and go in all those nooks and crannies of insecurity and projections of insecurity. So nighttime is a dangerous time 
to just float around and let let ourselves wander into the neurotic passages of insecurity. Um, it's it's I have another technique. It's called um, active ignoring. Uh, my son used to live in Manhattan, and I was visiting him once. And, and I said, how do you sleep with this noise and the traffic and the horns? And he looked at me and he said, he said what noise? And I, at first, you know, it didn't occur to me, but he really didn't hear the noise. You see, and this is the neuroplastic part of my, my book. We can train our brain to ignore certain stimuli. Now, active ignoring is learning just like my son did to just not focus on the traffic. If we focus on the neurotic elements in our life, we're giving them energy, we're breathing life into them, we're reinforcing them. If you actively learn to ignore, you're, you're turning away, it's still there, but you're not focusing on it. And the brain will in turn learn and be trained to learn to ignore that which 10, 10 weeks ago was bringing us to our knees. Yeah. So you've been practicing and I love the phrase. You've been practicing for for forty at least forty years. Uh, it's as long as I have been doing uh, doing what I've been doing. I got into radio in nineteen seventy nine. Um, what was it that intrigued you such that you felt the need to go into this particular profession? I mean, the, you know, you have to learn how to be almost dispassionate because a lot of people, they come in with some some crazy stuff. But at the same time, you also don't want to seem disconnected uh, from them to where they don't see they don't uh, feel that you care. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's so very important to, with the points that you, you make just now. And, and two things. One, uh, my own healing. I, I, I grew up with anxiety and insecurities. Uh, that's why I started uh, analysis as a, as a graduate student. Uh, I, I wanted to know why I was suffering. I, I figured psychology had to be the answer. So I, I was going to find an answer by good God, and I did. So I got into this because of my own need to not feel so crummy all the time. So some anxiety, a bit of depression, and, uh, and a long history of many therapists. Uh, I was fortunate enough to go to the California School of Professional Psychology out in San Diego, we were required to have our own therapy, both individual and group therapy. The more you get to understand yourself and quell your own demons, the more effective you are with someone else. The more you have dealt with your own demons, the more effective you are with someone else. I'm very compassionate with my, my patients. I'm not standoffish and I'm interactive. That's because I think that we have to challenge each other in a therapy session. And I, I think self-coaching is so appealing to me because I'm not a passive therapist. I don't just sit back. I coach people. I help motivate. Someone with depression doesn't have the energy to really go the distance oftentimes. And uh, I can't let that happen. And I won't. And this tends to translate as a coach motivating a player to get off that bench and get out in the field. It works for me. And I think it's worked for many people all around the world that have read my works. And it's it's uh, something too. I mean, you have this self coaching series, uh, um, and it's often <laughs> it's often been said that uh, a doctor has himself who has himself for a patient, uh, something along the lines has a fool for a patient. Uh, I forget how the the quote goes, but you know what I mean. 
So when you start talking about self-coaching and working through some of these things on our own, um, how, do, how do you transition that uh, as far as uh, saying, hey, look, yeah, I'm here and you can pay me the 150 or 200, whatever the whatever the price is, uh, an hour for analysis. By the way, was your next door neighbor and uh, um, uh, oh, how can I now forget his name? Woody Allen. Was your neighbor Woody Allen? Mr. Mr. Neurotic. I mean, that's that's his title. I tell you, you know, I still love the line in a joke that he was telling. He says he had this he was on stage and he had pulled out a pocket watch out of his coat. And he says, yeah, this is a pocket watch that I I need this for my analysis. I bought this off of my my grandfather on, you know, bought this. I bought this off of my grandfather on his deathbed. He was a very insignificant man. <laughs> anyway, uh, so let's go back to my question there. In terms of uh, uh, this whole process. Yeah, the just quick Woody Allen. Uh, he, he, he was at his therapist and the therapist said, you know, uh, you know, why do you have a duck on your head? Uh, why don't you take it off your head? He says, I can't, I need the eggs. <laughs> yes, I've heard that one too. <laughs> but, uh, you know, one of the things I try to do and I laid out uh, since, since I've developed a very pragmatic program, uh, this self-coaching program, I wanted it to be for someone that could do this on their own or with the therapist. Uh, the, the key is to lay it out in a way to show that it is straightforward. It is not rocket science. You don't have to have a PhD. Once you understand the dynamics, it's really quite simple. And we could break it all down into whether you're feeding or starving your insecurity. That paradigm will allow you to go through a step-by-step -step program and really on your own, be able to do the exercises and the program. And, and one thing I should point out, you don't change by reading a book. No book is going to change you. Mm -hmm. You have to change you. And the book may lay out some guidelines for you to follow. But if you don't practice, and again, back to the neuroplasticity, you have to practice every day. If you want to practice a musical instrument, you're not going to practice one day and then become Mozart. You have to work at these exercises if you want to do this. Yeah. Now, if you don't want to do it, God bless. But if you want to heal yourself, know what you have to do, work at it every day, and the brain will literally change its anatomy to conform to your health. Always remember the famous words of Jack Benny who said, you have to practice even to be bad. So, <laughs> I'm not sure what this program's turned into here. A bunch of one-liners or not. Uh, but uh, that's another aspect that I find very important in, in these Oh, I hate using the cliched phrases uh, in these times. Oh, uh, these times are what they are and uh, and so forth. But humor, laughter. Um, my gosh. Now, I know that right now in in these, I'll call them ultra sensitive times. We need to be careful uh, if, if we're going to watch something like I was talking with my wife uh, just uh, earlier today about uh, some of the comedians of the past, like Richard Pryor and uh, Eddie Murphy, for example. I don't know that they could get away with the humor that they uh, told back then about their families and so forth and their experiences. And yet at the same time, it's been said that, well, only a black man can tell black jokes. 
Only a Chinese man can tell Chinese jokes and so on and so forth. And my wife actually says, actually, no, they shouldn't be telling those jokes. Uh, they, they, you know, they should. And these, these are different times. Um, uh, a dear friend, not a dear friend. I wish he had been a dear friend of mine. Stan Freeberg, the late Stan Freeberg, the, the satirist, uh, did a series on the United States of America, the early years, basically the founding of this country. And there's one uh, uh, one uh, satirical skit in there about um, uh, the 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 picnic that they're having. Uh, that they're going to invite people to to try to get Mayor Pennypacker voted as mayor of the of the town, whatever the town was. And they thought, well, what about the Indian vote? He says, well, maybe we could we will invite an Indian. Yeah, it'll show that you're sensitive to da da da. And it's like I don't think that humor would go over today. I think that would be a great deal of offense. Now, I only find it funny because of the context in which I heard it as a sixth, seventh, eighth grader back in the late 60s, early 70s. But here we are, the second decade of the 2020, uh, of the 21st century, and sensitivities have changed, attitudes have changed, perspectives have changed, whether you like it or not. <coughs> what are your thoughts in terms of that aspect of, of going through our daily lives and being sensitive to those aspects that others might, you might still think is funny just because it was always funny to you, but is now a bone of contention with a lot of people. They, they're easily offended in that context. Yeah, I, I, I think that if we look at the way we react, I, I kind of have a, I guess, a relativity that I, I look at how how educated someone is. And I use that term very differently than pure education. Um, the more educated we are psychologically, the more sophisticated we are psychologically, the less inclined you are not to get it. Those that seem to not get it are those that really uh, don't get it because they have an opaqueness to life. They can't project themselves into someone else's shoes. Um, I find, I mean, I grew up with a lot of prejudice um, and not to get into it, but, uh, but I realized it was hurtful. It was not pleasant. And, and I saw prejudice from my own parents uh, and I, I didn't like it. Um, I, I found that to me, it is so offensive to be so ethnocentric that you look at someone else and it's us and them and you say, they are not as good as me. That is such a profoundly disturbing psychological burden to carry. We've got to shed those prejudices and we've got to educate ourselves, I feel, to really be able to empathize to such an extent that we wouldn't want to punch our own selves in the nose with any kind of uh, slanderous statement. So why would we possibly want to do it to someone else? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's Pollyanna, but I feel that way. Well, I, I've often thought, yes, the First Amendment to the Constitution does give you free speech. But at the same time, I, uh, you know, right or for right or wrong, I believe that there's a responsibility that you have as a human being, not just an American, to be aware as much as you can 
of the of the uh, uh, of your audience. And as the phrase goes, you know, know, know your audience before you say something. I remember years ago when I first started at this station, um, <clears throat> I was chatting with a gentleman who's going to be a, a guest on one of the programs. And I, I just met him and I made the comment to him that, uh, yeah, I, 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 I would never run for public office. I would never, never do that because I have too much integrity. He was a politician. <laughs> and uh, we laugh about it now. And he wasn't really offended by it per se. At least I don't think he was. But, but I didn't know my audience. Um, so these are, these are areas that, that, you know, we really need to, need to be cognizant of. Step three in your four steps of mind talk in the book, Unlearning Anxiety and Depression, is uh, responsive, uh, I believe that's correct, responsive living. What is responsive living? Let me explain it this way. You get in your car and you get behind the wheel and you say to yourself, now what if, what if a squirrel runs in front of my car? Should I, should I hit the brake first or should I swerve? So you start getting all conflicted with all of these thoughts, these neurotic thoughts, of these what ifs. Um, responsive living is trusting. Believing, as we talked earlier, in our instinctual ability to do things in the moment in reaction and response to life itself. So the, the person with self-trust gets behind the same wheel of that car, says, well, what if a squirrel runs in front of my car? Well, that person says, well, if that happens, I'll just trust that I'll, I'll know what to do in that moment. So it frees us to not have to live in an anticipatory type of life. It allows us to be responsive to life as it unfolds. You cannot be responsive to life if you are insecure and you don't have self-trust because you have to compensate for your own distrust by knowing what's coming around the corner before it comes. The more secure you become, the more self-trust, call it a muscle, the more self-trust muscle you develop, the more you're willing to let life unfold and react to it responsibly. Well, I'll tell you, it's it is uh, uh, one of those aspects of life that um, you know often uh, when when I was first when we first moved here to Santa Barbara, and I had never experienced wildfires before, but in uh, I think it was June, uh, in the middle of June of two thousand six, I saw this tiny little puff of smoke way off in the distance. I did not know, had no points of reference. I did not know how far away it was. I freaked out. I didn't know who to call. I didn't know uh, what agency I should notify of the smoke to that, that obviously was uh, telling me that there was a fire that was to the north of us and uh, potentially heading our way. Well, it turns out it was several hundred miles away. Um, well, over the course of the of the subsequent 14 years that we've lived here, uh, each time there was another wildfire, I would become less afraid. Uh, I would become more logical okay i need to call so and so because i i now see there's a fire here da 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 and um now i i'm no longer afraid and i still get into my logical framework but now i get mad because some idiot because 95 percent of all wildfires are human cost i get mad it's like you who did this well why why can't you be more careful you know kind of thing but I noticed that now I have the resources. I know who to call. Uh, I know what uh, sources to listen to on the radio 
or on my cell phone, uh, you know, getting notifications and so forth. Now, of all of the fires that we went through, we were only evacuated one time out of the 14 fires. And yet some of these fires came pretty darn close to where we live up on the mountain above Santa Barbara. And I often think, you know, I'd love to move somewhere where I don't have to deal with this stuff. Well, I'm not moving to Florida. Hurricanes. I'm not moving along the Gulf Coast. Hurricanes, among other things. Louisiana, not great because of the water level and all of that stuff. Don't want to deal with that. I don't want to move to the Midwest. Tornadoes. Uh, and and it's, it's like no matter what place I mention, we got to deal with stuff. We just do. And... Even if those things don't, those natural things don't happen, we're now in the midst of a pandemic. Who knew? And it doesn't make any difference where you live. The potential is, unless you are a hermit living in a cave somewhere, not listening to this program, <laughs> um, you're at risk. That's just the way it is, right? Um, so, um let me throw in a, a yeah please a, I, I yeah please respond a, to that a bit of a disclaimer uh anticipating uh if it were if we didn't have the ability to anticipate of course then i i think we might not have been here as you know saber-toothed tigers would have gobbled us up years ago but but i think that there's i need to make the distinction between healthy anticipation and neurotic and the healthy is wearing seatbelts so we don't get, if we do get in an accident, taking vitamins. There's a, there's a proportionate understanding and probabilistic understanding of why we do certain things. That's healthy. Mm -hmm. But it's the neurotic anticipation, the what ifs, uh, the things that are just disproportionate and unverifiable. Uh, those are the things that I was referring to. I just wanted to make sure I made that distinction, that, it, that you don't want to stop the capacity, nor can you, to anticipate life uh, and to prepare in a healthy way for it. But we do want to stop the anticipatory anxiety, insecurity-driven thinking. No, and I do get that, and I understand uh, what you're saying there. And it is it is a, a situation, it's it's where we live. It's, it's it, it just is. Um, is taking a position of acceptance of that, that that's not considered capitulation. Uh, that's Isn't that uh, sort of being... A realist? Yes. Yes. Being a realist is being practical and it's, stay, it's, it's staying alive. Um, you, you know, the thing is that it's maybe that's the best way to describe it. You are either an unrealist or you're a realist. Mm. And if you're an unrealist, then you're dealing with phantoms. You're dealing with boogeymen. You're dealing with things that are, as you say, when you go to bed at night, those, those are the, the phantoms that come about and haunt us. Uh, all the things that are going to go awry that mean remember mark twain i've worried about many things in my life most of which have never happened yep yeah. well they say statistically it's that 90 percent of what we worry about doesn't doesn't ever happen and even the 10 percent probably doesn't happen the way we imagined it happening um I, I, as a matter of fact uh, uh case in point my wife and i we've been dreaming about uh you know getting a truck so that we can get a travel trailer, so we can do some traveling, you know. Well, I ended up getting in a non-injury car accident uh, in November of 2018. And uh, the next thing I know, <laughs> our Volvo is totaled. Thank goodness for that safety vehicle. And I say that in all seriousness. Uh, and the next thing I know, December 1st, we're buying a truck. And then less than 
a year later, October 1st of 20 of 2019, we're buying a travel trailer. Uh, you know, you just, and I remember somebody telling me, says, you know, Richard, you didn't have to have an accident to get the truck. I said, yeah, well, that's not the way I look at it. I wasn't hurt. The other driver wasn't hurt. Our cars were hurt, but that's just stuff. So I consider this, um, uh, this was the way that the universe had planned for me to make this happen. How have you, how have you, um, how do I want to put this? incorporated your inner life, your spirituality, if you will, into your practice. You mentioned about intuition, that you develop that intuitiveness as you go through each patient and practice and year. Uh, but tell us about that in terms of maybe the, a certain level of, okay, well, I don't know that we, you would ever go this far to tell a patient, well, you know, you have to understand that was God's will. That that happened. I know you would not probably go that far to say that, but what about your 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 philosophical leanings in relationship to your uh, PhD in psychology? Well, I guess philosophically, uh, the closest word that I could come to would be optimism, uh, and let me explain why. Um, the optimist and the pessimist project into the future. So neither one has a factual basis. But when you cultivate an optimistic perspective, and that's a leap of faith, um, you live a much different life in the present than the pessimist does. So my philosophy is really centered on optimism. When a patient walks through the door, uh, I damn well know I'm going to do everything I can to help them. And that patient, I feel, understands that I'm not going to let them escape until I help them. That's optimism. <laughs> optimism doesn't necessarily change what will be. Mm -hmm. uh, as Yogi Berra said, the future ain't what it used to be. <laughs> Opt optimism doesn't change things, but it really fuels the energy of the present. So yeah. I guess I, I know it's kind of lame to say optimism is my philosophy, but that, that comes close. Well, I, I have no problem with that. I'm, I've been an optimist all my life. I've had my moments of pessimism. Um, and, of course, nowadays it's easy to have a, a, a more moments of pessimism when we see the way certain human beings behave, both in this country and around the world. It's, it's you know, I've even posed this question uh, to many of my guests in regards to that pessimism. And I'll, what the heck, I'll put it to you. Joseph, do you think that based upon man's behavior to man, as well as his behavior to the planet, uh, that he really deserves to to continue? I mean, my goodness, it just he's not learning, not learning a thing. And he keeps repeating himself. You know, I, I'm reminded of my traditional training, uh, Joseph Campbell, Carl Jung, C.G. Jung. Um, we have a shadow side of our personality. This is part of, uh, I guess, Jung's uh, testimony to, to, to the fact that unless you come to recognize that in yourself, which is somewhat nefarious, in the Bible it's called Satan or the devil. There are many manifestations of this. But unless we come to understand that in us, in us which can up, turn our apple cart, uh, we are susceptible. Mm. And, and I think that consciousness and conscious raising and, uh, is critical 
but uh, I dare to say that how many people are going to take seriously the inner journey in order to uh, really not be uh, overrun by the shadow side of our own personalities, our own psyche. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a very good point. And, and you know, I, I don't want to sit here and say, well, okay, uh, the man does not con- does not deserve to continue on, so we're just not going to allow you to have any more children. Uh, no more babies. I'm sorry. Uh, you've you've uh, outstayed your welcome. Uh, you've violated too many of the natural laws. Uh, you've polluted. You have destroyed. You've done this, that, and the other thing. So uh, this is it. This is uh, when, when the last baby that's born at the end of this year dies it's over the human existence will uh, cease to exist uh so that is of course assuming we don't destroy ourselves in the meantime <laughs> which i'd like to think we won't um but it is it is sometimes frustrating but the the optimism is when i start seeing stories of people stepping out of their comfort zone to help other people who are about as far out of their comfort zone as they possibly could be and that absolutely warms my heart and says, okay, there's still hope. It's not over yet. <laughs> um, and and I'll, I'll keep the faith. I'll, I'll dissuade the ignorance so as not to engage the fear, so as to remain in a state of faith, in a state of gratitude, uh, and and continue to share that. And that's what we're trying to do with this program. And I want to thank you for sharing with us uh, your work. Now, there is a fourth step, folks. And we're not going to talk about it on this program because I would like for you to go to his website. And even if you just read through what he has on his website, uh, you can then even purchase a copy of the book, which I'm curious, is it available yet in audible form? Yes, it's audible and in print. Finally, oh, fantastic! Uh, then I I may go to Amazon. I have I'm I'm with Amazon Prime, so I have Audible as well, and I have three, two or three credits. So I may just go ahead and uh, get the book on Audible and listen. I I'm very sorry. I thought you meant iTunes. Um, I. Oh well, that it doesn't matter. I'm uh, that's fine. But I think it's great for people to have that available because it's a great thing to be listening to. It really is, Joseph. Uh, it's it's marvelous. But did you read it or did they, did they have a narrator do it? I, I totally missed the point you made there in terms of Audible. Uh, it's it's in uh, it's an iBook. I'm trying to think what what that's called. Uh, not not oh, Kindle. Print. Are you saying Kindle? Kindle. I'm sorry. It's oh, I see. Kindle. Yeah, the the audio book. Uh, usually, all my other books are with Blackstone Audio, mm-hmm. and uh, we will probably be doing this hopefully with Blackstone. But because of the virus, it just never got off the ground. So as soon as this virus clears up, we'll probably do it in, in audio as well. Well, fantastic! I I encourage you to pursue that because it's it's a great form format for people to to use. Uh, I love it. I've and I've been listening to Audible books before they were Audible books. Uh, as a uh, legally blind young man, uh, boy, I used to listen to talking books for the blind and recordings for the blind. Uh, most uh, the talking books, I believe, were recreational reading and recordings for the blind were textbooks for school. Uh, so um, and I've recorded a few books myself uh, for my first wife, who was totally blind. So I, I think it's a great format. I really do. And I'm- interestingly, I, I, the one book I did in uh, for um books for the blind was in uh, 
for the BBC in New York City in their studios. And that, that was the studio that they, they make all those for the uh, Audible for the Blind. Oh, yes. Well, they, they had, uh, I believe it was, uh, the record, it was recorded in the studios of the Recordings for the Blind. I'm trying to remember. They used to give the address in New York City. Um, Penn Station. Yeah. Oh, I, I wish that I had known it was there at that time when I was there. I've only been in New York once, and it was in 1993. And it just so happens it was Earth Day. That's not the place you want to be in Central Park. Not on that day. But anyway, uh, I should have thought about that because that would have been a fun place to uh, fun place to visit. Well, Joseph, Joseph J. Luciani, Ph.D., I want to thank you so much for sharing Unlearning Anxiety and Depression, the four-step self-coach coaching program to reclaim your life. It's been a pleasure to have you on the program uh, to help to enlighten us a little bit on um, ways that we can we can live a better, more uh, healthier life, if you will, uh, psychologically, emotionally, uh, maybe even spiritually. We can maybe get that get going for us, too. Uh, and I really do appreciate it. And I'm hoping once we are able to move about that if you ever find yourself out here in Santa Barbara, we'd love to have you in studio to continue the conversation because I know there's a lot more to talk about. Well, I, I certainly would enjoy that. No question about it. It was a great interview. And I would like to add one thing. You mentioned before that the website was www.self-coaching.net. Yeah, it's either self-coaching dash or self-coaching either way. So if one forgets, selfcoaching.net. Well, I will tell you this. We will be linked to your website on our podcast, on our website. So people can just go to the podcast, listen to it, and then click on the link to your website. Uh, the As I mentioned earlier, the grocery cart, if you're listening on the player, or your name on the file, and boom, it's going to take them to your website. They won't even have to think about the name of the website. They can just go there and find out more about it. So we encourage people to do that. I have three final questions before I let you go. And uh, and again, I thank you so much for giving us so much time. But I do want to remind our listeners that uh, this is Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World, giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. And of course, 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. on Sundays, 1 a.m. on Monday mornings. And uh, we podcast as I mentioned before, on SoundCloud and iTunes and Spotify and TuneIn Radio and a bunch of other locations. And if you'd like to help us out financially, PayPal and Patreon accounts for your security as well as mine are there for you to support us financially if you can. And again, my my undying thank yous to those who have helped and will help in the future. Uh, it is greatly appreciated. So my final three questions to you are, who is Joseph J. Luciani? <laughs> Wow. (laughs) I'll tell you who I am. I'm just a uh, humble kid from Hudson Street who happened to get really, really lucky in life and had some good breaks, some uh, some great people that I met along the way. And uh, I've been able to do something that I never would have dreamed of, and that's to make other people's lives a little bit better. So that's who I am. What is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you're doing now? I would, I would have to say that I would love to provide clarity for those that cannot see what they need to see to feel the life that is possible. Um, I think that clarity is, comes from uh, understanding what, uh, wh- what really trips us up. And that psychology part of it is helping people really to reclaim their lives. That would be what. Mm. 
And finally, what is your life's purpose? I would have to say right now, my life's purpose is to interact in a meaningful way, not just with people, but with my environment, um, to just, just be a part of this whole blue marble floating through space and to be able to experience the years that are available to me in such a way that when the time comes and I put my head down on that pillow, uh, I could, I'd be able to say to myself, job well done. Um, that, that would be really important to me. Well, once again, we want to thank you for giving us so much time here on the program and sharing your story as well as your work. And we certainly hope that people will go to your website, which we will be linked to, and find out more about you as well as the work that you're doing. And get a copy, folks, of the book, Unlearning Anxiety and Depression. I want to thank you for listening to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. And until our next broadcast podcast, love to lull.